One of the things that frustrates me when I see people beginning to study the Old Testament, and as I've said before, they make such a good beginning reading through Genesis and Exodus, and then they start to lose their zeal when they get bogged down in Leviticus and Numbers and so on. And I get disappointed because I just want them to get to First and Second Samuel. I love the books of Samuel. There is so much content in these books as the scriptures reveal to us the lives of some of the most important personages of the Old Testament. But it's not just the lives of the Old Testament saints that stand out in the books of Samuel, but again we see such a magnificent portrait of God. Now, we've mentioned already the period of the judges, and I said that the period of the judges extends all the way up to and including Samuel. But of course, the story of Samuel is not given until the book of 1 Samuel. And Samuel is introduced as the son of the woman Hannah who had been childless and who had prayed and prayed and prayed that God would hear her prayer and grant her a son. And in fact, the prayer of Hannah that is found early on in 1 Samuel is almost exactly duplicated later on in the New Testament in the prayer of Mary called the Magnificat. And if there's any person in this period of Jewish history that typifies the coming Christ, it is Samuel. For when he is born, his mother, out of such profound gratitude for God's answering her prayer, dedicates Samuel to the life of serving God and presents him to the then judge of Israel, the venerable Eli. And Samuel now stays under the care of Eli. And we remember that story, how in the middle of the night when Samuel was sleeping, he heard a voice calling his name saying, Samuel. And he awoke and he ran over and he, he shook his mentor, Eli, and he said, did you call me? And Eli said, no, you must be, you know, hearing things, go back to bed. And Samuel goes back to sleep and again God calls him in the darkness, calling him Samuel. And Samuel rises again and runs to Eli and said, did you call me? And he said, no. And now Eli is beginning to get the idea that maybe it is God who is speaking to Samuel. And he gives instructions to Samuel. And so Samuel returns and goes back to sleep again. And now the third time God comes and speaks to him in the intimate form of address, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answers God saying, Speak, Lord, for thy servant hears. And then God reveals to Samuel that his judgment is going to come upon the house of Eli. For though Eli himself had judged Israel in the spirit of godliness, his sons were evil and Eli had failed to discipline them. And so God says to Samuel, he's going to bring the judgment on the family of Eli. And in the morning, Eli said to Samuel, did God speak to you? And he said, yes. And he said, what did he say? And Samuel didn't want to tell him. 
he was terrified to tell Eli the bad news. And Eli tries to wring it out of him, and Samuel won't give it to him until finally Eli says, well, whatever God said to you, may it happen to you unless you tell me. And so Samuel said, okay, I'll tell you. And he told Eli that God was going to judge him and his household. And one of the things that is so significant about that moment was that when Eli heard the prophecy of his own doom and of God's judgment on his own family, he looked at Samuel and he said, it is the Lord. And soon after that, the judgment came. It came with the ignominious defeat of the Israelite soldiers in which Eli's sons were killed. And when Eli got the report of this, he fell over dead. But the darkest moment of Israel up to this point took place in this context because in that battle, the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God Himself, was captured by the Philistines and taken away and set up as a trophy in the temple of Dagon, the Philistine god. And of course, the surviving daughter-in-law of Eli gave birth that day to a child, and she herself died as a result of her giving birth in this travail. But before she died, she named her son Ichabod, or Ichavod, which means the glory has departed because the throne of Yahweh, the sacred ark, had been captured and placed in the hands of their most bitter enemies, the Philistines. The glory had departed from Israel. And it's in that context that Samuel emerges as the spiritual leader of the nation. He has to step into the empty shoes of Eli at a time when the national faith and the national hope had reached an all-time low. But of course, we know the remarkable events that transpired thereafter, how that when the Philistines brought the throne of God into their temple to mock it and to use it as a trophy, what happened was the people themselves were afflicted by plagues and their statue of their God was smashed into a thousand pieces and the five kings of the Philistines began to play musical arc, shipping it from one city-state to another, from Gath and Ascalon and so on. And everywhere the ark went, the plague went. Until finally they got the message, it's not a good idea for us to keep the ark of Jehovah in captivity and they sent it back by an ox cart in another remarkable story that I don't have time to go into now. But in that event, when the ox carts or the cattle were, were carrying this ark in this cart, no one was driving the ox cart. It was being led simply by the Spirit of God, and it came across the border back into Israel precisely to the place where God had ordained that it should come. And when the people of Israel saw the ark coming in a distance, they were rejoicing, and I don't know what they said, but I suggested that they said, Kavod, the glory is back. And during the life of Samuel, there is great blessing upon the nation, as had been during the terms of other judges. But near the end of his life, again Israel's hearts became hardened, and they 
did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord. But this time, their forsaking God took on an entire new dimension, one that was unprecedented in Old Testament history, and we read it in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. We read, Now it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes. They perverted justice. And we're seeing now the repetition of the same thing that happened with the sons of Eli. You know, it's been said kind of as an axiom that God has no grandchildren, that just because somebody is a godly person and they have children, that does not automatically guarantee that the children will follow in the footsteps of the parents because every generation needs conversion. And as soon as we think that we can bottle it and sell it and control and manipulate the gifts of God's Spirit, we've missed the whole reality of redemption. So all the elders of Israel gathered and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like the nations. Now we've seen throughout the period of the judges that what gets Israel in trouble over and over and over again is their relentless pursuit of conformity to the pagan nations and pagan culture around them. First, it was an embracing of paganite religion. And now they want the political institutions that they observe around them to be imported and that they may be like everybody else. And all the other nations were ruled over by kings. Israel didn't have a king. That is, they didn't have an earthly king. They had forgotten who their king was because this was to be not a democracy or an oligarchy or an aristocracy or a monarchy. This was to be a theocracy where God was the king of his people. But now the people say, we want a king just like everybody else around us. Now, when Samuel hears this, he is very displeased. It says, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. Now, let me just pause here. Samuel understood that. He knew that this wasn't just a rejection of him or of his family, that it was a rejection of everything he stood for. It was a rejection of everything he worked for. It was a rejection of his entire ministry. I don't know how many times I've talked to retired clergy, pastors, who devoted their lives to the nurture of the saints in a church only to have that pastor retire and then watch the church fall apart and become secularized. And how heart-wrenching that is to any godly pastor or any godly minister. Now, obviously, Samuel was feeling this for himself, but he also understood that what was going on here was 
a rejection of the God that he represented to the people. And I wonder if he was surprised when God said to him, Samuel, listen to them. They've rejected me, so let them have their king. In this sense, God is like the prodigal father in the New Testament, who when his son wants to rebel and to go into a pagan land and to waste the riches of his own father's inheritance, which is what we all do. One of the things that I think is heroic about the prodigal father in that parable is that he lets him go. He doesn't stop caring about the son. He doesn't stop praying about the son. He doesn't stop loving the son, but he lets him go. He gives his son over to his own sinful inclinations, and this is how God deals with Israel. In fact, the final judgment of God is let him who is wicked be wicked still. The worst kind of judgment that God can send upon anybody is to give us free reign, to turn us over to our own evil inclinations. But here he's saying to Samuel, if the people don't want me to be their king, give them a king. That's the sinful foundation for the monarchy. And yet even in this, where the giving and the granting of the desire for a king in a very real sense is an act of divine judgment, yet in God's secret counsel as it becomes manifest later, God is going to work through this institution of the monarchy to provide his chosen king for his kingdom, who will be from the tribe of Judah and whose kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, who will be the king of the kings and in the Lord of the lords. And so even though the monarchy of Israel begins in a shameful set of circumstances, the monarchy in a sense, foreshadows the coming kingdom of God. Let's just take one moment again to look at that word monarch. When we started our study, we looked at the very first verse of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the Greek translation of that, the word for beginning in Genesis 1 is the same word that it is in the first chapter of John's Gospel, N-R-K, in the beginning. That Greek word, R-K, means beginning, chief, or ruler. And the word R-K, as it's interpreted to mean chief, the preeminent one, comes into our own language. We talk about enemies and arch enemies, rivals and arch rivals, bishops and archbishops, angels and archangels, heretics and heresiarchs, or arch heretics. That means they are the chief, the big ones. The idea of the word monarchy means one chief, one ruler, one sovereign. And the reason that this is such a dramatic moment in Jewish history is that up until this point, there was only one ruler for Israel, and it was God. And so God sees in this desire for an earthly monarch, an attempt to supplant his reign. They have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods 
so are they doing to you also. Now heed their voice. However, he said, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them because the beginning of the monarchy is the beginning of the radical corruption of the Jewish nation. So Samuel told the words of the Lord to the people who asked for a king, and he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. That is, he's going to set up a draft board, and he's going to conscript your sons and use them for the advancing of his conquests. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. Now you're going to begin to work for the state instead of for yourself. <laughs> instead of being able to eat what you produce, you're going to have to use the labor of your farming to feed the government. So that's what's going to happen. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. And you will cry out on that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, we will have a king over us, that we may be like all the nations, and that the king may judge us and go out before us to fight our battles. And so after this solemn warning, God instructed that an emerging hero among the people, a man with great gifts of military might, a man of enormous stature and handsome, and proud from the tribe of Benjamin, which should have been a hint already because going back to the patriarchal blessing of Genesis, it was to the tribe of Judah that the kingdom of God was promised. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. But this man, who is the first king of Israel, is not from the tribe of Judah. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, interestingly enough, because later on, centuries past, another Benjaminite by the same name becomes very important in redemptive history. For both of these men were named Saul, King Saul and Saul of Tarsus. The first Saul ends in disgrace. The second Saul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. But Saul is anointed by Samuel as the first king of Israel. And his reign begins with glory. He has tremendous military victories. And he becomes enormously popular with the people. But there was a fatal flaw in the man. There was a kind of arrogance that befell Saul. On one occasion, he was waiting for Samuel, who was to come and bless him before they went into battle and to offer the sacrifices to God to prepare the armies for that occasion. And Samuel didn't show up exactly on time. And so Saul was impatient. And so 
He took it upon Himself to make the sacrifices. Yes, there was a separation of church and state to the sense that there was a division of labor here, and it was not the responsibility of the king to arrogate for himself the rights and the privileges and the authorities of the judge. But Saul took his filthy hands and desecrated the holy things. And at that moment, Samuel arrived and he saw it. And he said, for this, Saul, God has rejected you, and he has reserved for himself a man after his own heart, whom he will raise up to replace you and your house. And Saul goes crazy. He shrinks from his responsibility as the commander-in-chief when he's confronted by the champion of the Philistines with the giant Goliath. And he stands aside while a young boy comes up and delivers the nation from the oppression of the Philistines. And the people begin to sing in a very short time, Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his tens of thousands, and Saul is enraged and filled with jealousy, and to the end of his life pursues David, whom by now Samuel has anointed to be the king, inauspicious beginning for such a remarkable monarch.